Let's open now our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, as we continue through this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us through our brother Paul. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. That has us at verse 3. So hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we rejoice We give thanks for this pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your living word, that through your word, by your spirit, we know our God, we hear the voice of our God, we are transformed into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would accomplish by your spirit, through your word, all of your good purposes in us and among us and ultimately through us and I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have come starting last week as we've come into chapter 12 into this transition moment in the book of Romans from the first 11 chapters, which are really addressing Christian belief. And we have seen there these these mountaintops of doctrinal and theological truth, deep teaching on the nature of God and his eternal purposes in salvation. And now with chapter 12, we transition into the last five chapters of the book addressing the Christian life, how we ought to live in light of who God is and what he has done and is doing. And so last week we looked at these first two verses. If you look there with me, verse number one, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And really from chapter 12 on, what Paul is going to give to us are very down-to-earth exhortations. We have, have been in the ivory tower, we have been on the mountaintop, and now Paul is bringing all of that to bear on the way we live our lives with very practical exhortations. What does a living sacrifice to God look like? What does a life of worship look like? What does it look like when we are transformed by God by the renewing of our mind? In other words, what does the Christian life look like? And the string of directives that, that are laid out for us from chapter 12 onward are really just the outworking of what Paul says here in verses 1 and 2, the outworking of what a living sacrifice to God is, a life dedicated to God, a life transformed by God. 
And so the rest of this book is really the outworking of these two verses we considered last week. And at the very top of the list, as, as Paul now gets into it, what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, what it looks like to live the Christian life, we find in our passage today three things that are at the very heart of what that looks like, to, what it looks like to live the Christian life, what it looks like to, to be a living sacrifice to God. The, the genuine Christian who is being transformed by the Holy Spirit will have a life marked by these three things we see in this passage. By, by genuine, from-the-heart humility, by a vital interconnectedness in the local church, and by a life of service to God and others with everything that God has entrusted to us. So let's look now at this passage. First, we see this humility in verse 3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has Assigned. So the first thing Paul marks out for us when he, when he begins to talk to us about what the Christian life looks like, what it, what it looks like to be a living sacrifice to God, the first thing he marks out for us is true humility. This is right at the top of the list. A right estimation of self. C.J. Mahaney defines humility as this. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's what humility looks like. True humility, this, this kind of humility, the kind of humility the Bible is talking about, the kind of humility that we're commanded to here is not a natural thing. It's not a natural thing for us. It goes against our nature. True humility is a grace-given quality in the life of the Christian. And truly, it is only the Christian who can be biblically humble in this way. It goes against our natural human tendencies. Our natural human tendencies, and we're all born like this, is to act like this entire universe revolves around us. That we are the centerpiece of everything. Well, humility is the opposite of that. Humility is the opposite of thinking that everything revolves around us. It's a right estimation of self that has God at the center, has God at the head, and then even puts other people's needs ahead of us. We're just farther and farther from the center. And notice this word at the beginning of verse 3, for. This word, for, ties what Paul says here with everything he said before. We saw this last week with the word therefore in verse 1. In light of all the things I've just told you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And now he says, in light of all the things I've just told you and the fact that you're supposed to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, do this. So, so, so first of all, he, he's connecting this with God's grace in the gospel as revealed to us in these first 11 chapters. He, he's connecting the call to humility, to Christian humility, to all that God has done by his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, to overturn our indictment, to overturn our condemnation in sin, to unite us to himself as his chosen, beloved heirs of his kingdom. He, he's tying it to the truth that, that though there is no one righteous, not even one, that God is willing to declare us righteous, to declare us justified before himself by crediting to us the perfect, sinless righteousness of Christ. He's pointing to the fact that God's grace to us in Christ is undeserved. 
that it could never be earned, that there's no work we could do to, to merit this. He's pointing to the grace of God as he calls us to be humble because the truth is the grace of God as we have seen in this book so far, it crushes human pride. There's no room for pride. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for arrogance because you could never merit heaven on your own. It doesn't matter how wonderful a person you are. Even Benita couldn't earn heaven on her own merits. And if she can't do it, you sure can't. The gospel tells you this about yourself. You're unworthy. You're undeserving. You're, you're, you're a rebel. You're a treasonous idolater. You are in such a desperate condition of condemnation and judgment with a, not just a death sentence hanging over you, but an eternal sentence of damnation hanging over you that you are in need of saving on your very best day in your very best moment. You need saving. You need someone else's goodness because you actually don't have any true goodness of your own. You need someone else's merit because you don't actually have any merit of your own. The gospel of God's grace crushes pride. And what a blasphemous thing it is. On the, on the other side of this grace, on the other side of salvation, for a Christian to then become puffed up with pride, for, for a Christian to then exalt himself. What foolishness that is. What arrogance that is. Remember how chapter 11 concluded after, after all this lengthy treatment of the glory of God and, and his work in saving undeserving sinners? Paul says this, from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And that's why as we come then to chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, in light of all of that, present your bodies a living sacrifice. To, to reject the grace of God in the gospel by pursuing self-inflating, self-glorifying pride is to turn the gospel on its head. It is to make ourselves and our human will the center of all things. It is, it is in, in effect to say, from me, through me, to me are all things. To me be the glory forever. It's to live for our own glory. And this is not what the gospel does in the heart that has been transformed by God's grace. The, the gospel leads us into being an all-out sacrifice to God, a living sacrifice, the one we see in verse 1. To present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice of worship, this is what the gospel always does 100% of the time in the life of the believer. There is no such thing as the believer who will not do this. This is what the gospel does in the life of the Christian. So the, the one who says, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not yet my Lord. In other words, I won't submit my life to him, but I'd sure like to go to heaven and not hell. That's not genuine saving faith. There's no such thing as that Christian. Verse 2 then, the gospel of God's grace, God's saving work in our life, it also causes us to not be squeezed into the mold of this world, but to be transformed from the inside out into the likeness of Christ. This is the effect of grace on all genuine believers. Now, it doesn't mean we're all in the same place along that road, but we're all on that road. 
That's exactly what the grace of God does in every person whom God saves. And Paul has, has set the example for us in this. Look at his words here in verse 3. For by the grace given to me. How, how, how do I say this to you? I say it by the grace given to me. Apart from God's grace, Paul would not be saying this to us. He wouldn't even want to say this to us. Paul's a trophy of God's grace. In Philippians 3, Paul outlines his earthly credentials, his, his credentials in the flesh, his lineage, which is unparalleled, his heritage, his, his training, which is unparalleled, his zeal for the law. All of these things, Paul's earthly credentials were such that if anybody could be saved through human effort and works and merit, it would be Saul of Tarsus. But the gospel caused Paul to come to a right estimation of himself, to, to see himself rightly in the light of God's glory and holiness, to see his own need for saving, to see his own dependence on grace, to, to understand that all of his merits, everything he thought he had earned, everything he thought he had accumulated into his own account was nothing but garbage compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is this is the work of God's grace in Paul's heart. And Paul knows this kind of humility, the kind of humility that was worked into him, the kind of humility that we are called and commanded to, it's a supernatural thing. It is a supernatural thing. It is not a natural thing. And that's why Paul can say to us, I say to everyone among you, because no one's exempt from this command. This is not a matter of personality or mood I'm just not a very humble person. I'm just not feeling very humble right now. No. This is the command for everyone among you, Paul says. No one is exempt from the call to rightly judge ourselves in light of who God is and in light of our sin. And we all tend to overvalue our own abilities, our own goodness, our own motivations. We all tend to to overvalue our own importance. One commentator on this passage said, to himself, every man is in a sense the most important person in the world and is always in need of much grace to keep a sense of moral proportion. That's absolutely right. We live our lives and our minds function as if we are the single most important people in all the universe. Just consider yourself for a moment. You know this is true. As much as we want to be humble, as much as we want to put other people first, as much as we know in our minds somewhere in there that we're not the center of all things, that, that God really is the center of all things, and then other people are, 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 are to come before us, just consider the hours of your day. Consider the minutes of your day. And think about this. How many of those minutes are spent thinking about yourself above everyone else? how you feel, what you want, what you don't have that you're dissatisfied about. Often, even in our serving of others, we're thinking about ourselves. How do I know that that's true? Because I've been around the church for a long time. Even in our service, which we offer to God, which we know we ought to do, we are thinking of ourselves. We want to be noticed. We want to be appreciated. We want to be applauded. 
And if we don't feel appreciated, we will cease to serve. We won't do it anymore because nobody notices. Nobody says a word about all the things I've been doing behind the scenes. What that reveals in us is that we really think we're the center of the whole universe. And even in our service, we're really serving ourselves. It takes supernatural grace to get over this. It takes supernatural grace to get past our our self-absorbed pride that absolutely dominates our lives. In the Greek here, Paul uses a version of the word think four times. The, the, The Christian life begins at the level of the mind, what we believe, and subjecting our thoughts to God's thought. And the first element of that is to think rightly about ourselves, to see ourselves rightly in the light of who God is. So Paul has spent 11 chapters telling us who God is and who we are. And Paul says the first step in living like a Christian is to consider that deeply, to be affected by that. He says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sober judgment. It's the word for sanity. To be in our right mind, to not be impaired in our thinking. Sobriety in thinking is set up in contrast against thinking highly of ourselves. So we can either think highly of ourselves or we can be sane. But we can't do both. That's what Paul says. Pride is an intoxicating thought pattern. It, it overwhelms us. Think about the times that pride has risen up in your life and, and you've been offended about something and you've demanded your rights. It's become intoxicating to where you can't even think about the words that you're speaking to people or the way you're treating them, the way you're presenting yourself to the world, the reflection it is on God and his church. It's intoxicating. It distorts our perception of ourselves. It distorts our perception of others. And to be humbled is to sober up, to sober up concerning ourselves, to sober up concerning this life we live. Charles Hodge says, a right estimate of ourselves can only be a humble one since whatever good there is in us is only of God. If there's anything good in you, friend, it's from God. It's not from you. We don't have anything to boast in but Christ. There's nothing in us to boast about. It's all from him. And then Paul says, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. God has given to every Christian the exact measure of faith that we need. The exact measure of faith that we need to trust him, to live for him, to be fruitful in serving him. He has given you, Christian, the exact measure of faith you need for that. There are no excuses And he's given us one another as well. This brings us to our second point, this interdependence. Look at verse 4. For as one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Again, we see this little word for. It means Paul's giving us an explanation. Paul is, is telling us why we should consider ourselves rightly. Why we should have humility, why we should have sober judgment, it's because, he says, we are one interdependent body. That's why we ought to think this way. You don't belong to yourself, Christian. You are a part of something much, much bigger. This means two things simultaneously. First, it means you are far less important than you think you are. 
And secondly, it means you are far more important than you think you are. Both of these things are true because of what Paul's telling us here about, about the way we've been grafted in and into this inter, interdependent, vital relationship in the church. We are, we are less important than, than our flesh wants us to believe, but we are far more important than our flesh wants us to believe as well. Twice he uses the phrase, one body. God has brought us into one body, not for our independence, but for our interdependence. You are a part of the whole. Everyone bringing the gifts that God has given to them so that the whole body will be built up and strengthened. Hebrews 10, verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what God has brought us into. You are a member of the body and that means you are less important than you're tempted to think, but you are also much more important than you may be tempted to think as well. If my left eye says to the rest of my body, I'm the most important thing in the whole world, we've just got to live for me. We, we just got to do everything we do just to, to make me happy so I feel fulfilled and wonderful. My right eye is going to have something to say about that. So is my hand, and so is my heart, and so is my brain. Left eye, you're not the most important thing in this universe, but we need you and we want you. God, God made you to be a part of this body so that this body could be whole and could function in the evangelical world at large, there is a defective understanding of ecclesiology, of the doctrine of the church. People emphasize individualism at the expense of the church community and the body of Christ. Most of today's church buildings are filled with individuals who consider themselves ultimately to be free agents. If I don't like it here, I'll go somewhere where I do like it. If they don't do things here the way I want them to be done, I'll go somewhere where they do things the way I want them to be done until I'm dissatisfied with something there, and then I'll leave too. Or they never consider that their unfaithfulness in attendance in corporate worship actually negatively affects the whole church. They either think of themselves as way too important or they think of themselves as not important enough. Both are faulty views of the body. Paul is teaching us something so much more robust. So much more robust about our interconnectedness, the vitality of it. And he's using this analogy of the human body. What a, what a perfect analogy for this. Like our bodies, the church is a living organism consisting of many members who are vitally interconnected to one another. Vitally interconnected first to Christ and then to each other. And so in covenant love, God relates to us and we relate to God and in this same covenant love we relate to one another. That's how God has, has created us to function in the church. John, John Murray says each member of the church has property in one another and therefore in one another's gifts and graces. I like that. We have property in one another and, and in each other's gifts and graces. In this church I have property in you and you have property in me. If you are unfaithful you trouble and deprive the rest of us by your unfaithfulness. We are affected by it. But if you grow in grace, it's good for all of us. We're affected by that as well, too. So it's our responsibility to watch over one another's welfare, spiritually and physically. I'm here to help you. You are here to help 
me. We are interdependent, not independent. That's why we have church membership. So we can know who those people are. God has given us to each other. We need each other. So we have this call to humility, to, to seeing ourselves soberly and rightly. We have this, this call to this vital interdependence on one another in the local church. And then third, we see this service in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Notice first of all that we are given differing grace gifts according to God's grace. We're all given differing gifts according to God's grace. Christian, you, you are supernaturally gifted by God for service in the body of Christ. You are gifted by God to actually use those supernatural gifts for the glory of God and the benefit of others. That doesn't matter if you're 8 years old. It doesn't matter if you're 85 years old. You don't age out of this one. You don't put your time in and be done with this one. You are gifted by God and you are commanded and responsible before God to use those gifts for His glory and the good of the church, the benefit of others. These are sovereignly appointed, undeserved, supernatural giftings given by God for the employment of believers in the service of other believers and the local church, the body of Christ. That's what these gifts are. They are given to us by God's grace for us to put to work, for us to use for the glory of God and the good of the local church. And no one has anything that they didn't receive. None of these things are just innate to us because we're pretty, pretty talented, pretty great people. No, these are gifts we've received from God by His grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul tells the Corinthian believers who are getting a little out of whack, why are you boasting as if all of these things weren't just freely given to you? Why are you acting like you're better than someone? These are grace gifts given to us by God according to his plan for his purposes benefiting his people. It means we oughtn't look at, at the gifts that God has given to us in his perfect wisdom, mind you, according to his perfect plan and then compare ourselves to someone else and go, oh man, wish I had what they had instead of what I've got. No, we need what you've got. We need you. There's, there are seven of them lift, listed here. Prophecy, serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, leadership, mercy. This is not an exhaustive list. There are actually other lists in the New Testament that have other things, but all of those combined, it's still not an exhaustive list. The, the New Testament really doesn't seem overly concerned with our figuring out exactly where we fit in this puzzle, figuring out exactly what my gifts are. We're not even given directions in how to use them. No, the instruction is just simply this. Go serve with them. God has given you gifts by his grace. Now serve with them. Serve him, serve his people with these gifts. Here in Romans 12, there's no lengthy description. There's no owner's manual for any of this. Just the instruction, do them. You want to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God? 
Take the gifts he's given to you and do them. Do them for his glory. Do them in the local church. Do them for the good of your fellow believers. Serve God and the church with your gifts. Paul says, if prophecy, great. Do it in proportion to your faith. If service, then serve. If teaching, then in our teaching. If exhortation, then in our exhortation. There's not specific instructions here. There's not specific instructions either about what these are or how to do them. It just says, whatever your gift is, do it. Whatever it is that the Lord has given to you, you need to be employing that. Whatever it is that God has given you, you need to employ it for the benefit of believers that you're connected to in the church and for the glory of God. That's the totality of the instruction he gives us on this. Do it. Be active. Put your hand to the plow. So friend, if you're not vitally interconnected with other believers in the local church, then you are missing out on what God has graciously provided through others for your benefit. You look around this room, every Christian you see in this room, every member of this church, God has given them specific gifts that are for your benefit, for your upbuilding. And if you're not vitally connected to the church, then you're missing that. You, you, you don't get that from them. More than that, you're being sinfully unfaithful and you're causing others to miss out on that which God has intended to benefit them through the gifts he's entrusted to you. Our vital connection to the local church is not peripheral to living the Christian life. It's not just something that makes it go a little better. It's life. It's vital. It's necessary. So Paul says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, Prophecy is the supernatural gifting of foretelling the Word of God, speaking forth God's Word. I believe what Paul's speaking about here is actually direct revelation from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's clearly a reference, I, I believe Paul's making here, to New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets, that the church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And he says Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the first stone that's laid is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we build from there, then comes the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the church was birthed in Acts 2. In that first generation of the church, what was the foundation? The foundation, Paul says, was the apostles and the prophets. In that first generation. Th th this gift was a critical gift for the foundation era of the church. Prophets. Prophecy. Now, now it's worth noting, before we go any further, that if you're going to build a large building in the next couple weeks... You're going to build the foundation level how many times? One time. You, you, 
You don't need to rebuild the foundation with each subsequent floor as it grows and expands. The foundation was laid one time. So when Paul says the foundation of the church was built on the apostles and the prophets, he, he means that that foundation was laid. We don't have to keep laying it. There, we don't have apostles, capital A, today anymore. They were foundational. And we don't have prophets today anymore. They were foundational. In the foundation of the church, though, these were crucial gifts. They were essential gifts. But before, now this is mind-blowing concept. Before Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, we didn't have this letter to the Romans. Shocking, isn't it? That's the kind of deep stuff you'll get from me. Well, we didn't have this letter until Paul wrote it. The church didn't, didn't have it. And so when Paul wrote this text, prophecy was still a means of receiving and communicating revelation from God that was previously unknown. There are new things being revealed and unfolded in the New Testament that were unknown before. Christians didn't know any of these things. And that's why it was essential, as Paul says here, that any words spoken came from faith alone. From faith alone. Not the result of someone's preferences and egos, which would be a huge temptation to add to or take away from what God was saying. Of course, this is a, a huge deal. In the Old Testament, if someone spoke a word of prophecy and it didn't come true, they took them outside the city and threw big rocks at them until they died. Or if they spoke a word of prophecy and it didn't match up with the scripture that God had already given to them, they took them outside the city and they threw big rocks at them until they were dead. And now there are some who say, well, in the New Testament, prophecy is totally different. It totally changed. It's not like that anymore. The only problem with that is we just don't ever read that in Scripture anywhere. In the New Testament, a person's words are to be measured against Scripture. And if they contradicted, they were marked as a false prophet. And that's why we can read some people's names in our New Testament who are being called out as heretics and false teachers. And so, so this guideline that Paul gives, the one who prophesies, or if, if, if prophecy in accordance with our faith, it, it is a binding guideline. It is only in proportion to faith. Don't go beyond that, Paul says. And so, again, the churches of the New Testament didn't have the full New Testament. So, so how were they going to operate under the New Covenant? How were they going to, to, to operate? How were they going to understand God's direction for how to live the Christian life, which was different than life under the Mosaic law was? It was different than having a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. This was new. How would they know how to live and operate if they couldn't stand up on a Sunday morning and say, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Romans chapter 12? Would you turn to 1 Timothy? Would you turn to Revelation? How, how would they know? And so the foundational office of the New Testament prophet was critical so that direct revelation could be given from God to his church. Well, there are not people walking around today with this foundational gift 
If they say they are, and there are many who do, they are liars. And they are false prophets. There is not an office of prophet anymore. Friends, we have the scriptures, and that is far better. That is far better than some guy in Kansas City calling himself a prophet, I assure you. In fact, what we have in Scripture is the record of this prophetic revelation from God. But we are called to proclaim the Word of God, are we not? We are called to foretell the Word of God. And so we do well to heed this instruction, to do so in proportion to our faith. Not to add to or subtract to the, from the word of God. Not to bend to this world and its demands of us and what we can say and what we can't say. Not to twist scripture to suit our preferences or traditions. We must be steadfast in holding to the word of God once delivered for all time to the saints. And he says a service in our serving. It comes from the idea of waiting tables, doing, doing the work of a household service. And Paul says, if your gift is service, just serve. Serve then. Specific instructions are not necessary. J just live out the very thing you've been entrusted with. And we'll see this pattern repeated then in the rest of the passage. If your gift is teaching, then teach, Paul says. If your gift is exhortation, then exhort. If it's giving, then be generous. If it's leadership, then lead with zeal. Lead with diligence. Embrace the gift and the calling that God has placed on your life. If it's mercy, be cheerful about it. The, the point is, Christian, use the gifts God has given you to serve God and his people. That, that, that's the command. And do so in humility. In other words, do so not because you think you're the greatest. Do so because you think God's the greatest. Don't, 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 don't serve because, oh, nobody can do this like me. No, it's not because of how great you are. Serve God and his people with the gifts he has given you because the gospel of God's grace has so transformed your life that you now offer your entire self as a, as a living sacrifice of worship to God. Serve him with the gifts he has given you. All of these are grace gifts. They're not earned. They're not deserved. And friend, they're not for you. If you are keeping them to yourself, if you're so disconnected from, from life in the body of Christ that if I were to ask you individually right now, how are you using your gifts for the glory of God and the good of the local church? And you would go, I, I don't have an answer. If that's the case, you're living as if these gifts God has have given to you terminate on yourself. But they're just for you. No, they're for the good of others. That, that's why they're there. God has entrusted you with them. You are responsible to him for their intended purpose, the good of others. They, they are supernatural giftings from God, but they are limited. No one has every gift you, you don't have contained in you, no matter how special you are, you don't have contained in you every gift that you need in order to live the Christian life and grow in grace. You do not. We need each other. 
God has given us to one another because we need one another. And no one can say, I don't have a gift so the church doesn't need me. I'm just not talented. I'm just not gifted. No, God has gifted you and we need it. God has given us to one another in the church so that the body of Christ will have everything that it needs for the people of God to be built up, for the people of God to grow in grace and be fruitful for his kingdom. And so, Christian, as we consider Paul's words here, we need to ask ourselves, are you humble? Have you been humbled by the grace of God? Are you, are you cultivating humility in your life? When, when pride wants to rise up and intoxicate you, Cause you to be one who is easily offended. One way to know if you're humble or not is to ask how easily offended you are. Because how easily offended we are is in direct proportion to how much we think we're the center of the universe. Are you cultivating humility in your life? Are you seeking to put it to death when pride rears its ugly head? Are you living a life of service to God and others with all that has been entrusted to you by God's grace? How's that working itself out in the local church? Because we might answer that question with yes. And what we mean is we smile at the person at Walmart when we're checking out. How's it working itself out in the local church? Are you vitally connected? Are you a functioning member of the body of Christ? Friend, this is what God is calling every single one of us to. For our good for our joy. This is what you were made for. This is what we were made for. It is God's grace and his kindness to us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, thank you for your spirit who has given life to our hearts that were dead in sin, who has applied to us the spotless righteousness of Christ that we could never earn, but that he earned through his sinless life in our place. Taking upon himself our condemnation, which we deserved. Lord, we rejoice in your great salvation. We rejoice that, that Lord, not only have you, have you chosen to save us, but, but you have given gifts to us that we might be fruitful for your kingdom, that we, we might bear much fruit, fruit that will last and Lord, you have vitally connected us with brothers and sisters so that we don't have to go through this life alone. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take full advantage of all the gifts that you have given to us, to, to employ the gifts you've entrusted to us individually for your glory and for the good of your people and for your kingdom's sake. And Lord, corporately as a church, Lord, that as we do this, we would be a beacon, a shining light, a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. Lord, in this dark and dying world, we pray that the light of your glory would shine in us and through us for your kingdom's sake, for the hope of salvation for this community and this nation and this world, for the eternal joy of your people for all time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.